the United States is the most technologically leveraged nation in the world. So what that means is that's a double-edged sword. It means, one, we get to have these great lives and great toys. Uh, but two, we have uh, realized all of these advantages by innovating faster than we can secure. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsu Politics. everyone and welcome to another episode. We are here today talking about the state of public education, cybersecurity, because if you did not know, it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month and we have a very special guest, Klon Kitchen, joining us to talk about cybersecurity. We're going to close out the show as we always do, talking about what's on our mind outside politics and today we're talking about reading habits. Before we do that, we have another big announcement. We know that the holidays bring a fresh flavor of stress in our lives, (laughs) especially as we negotiate different perspectives from family and friends about COVID-19, how everyone is feeling about Joe Biden, and whatever YouTube video happens to be revealing the truth about things in any given moment. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we thought we would all take a deep breath together and get prepared for this time of year in community. And we're going to do that with our first annual holiday huddle. This will be a live ticketed event on Zoom where you'll be able to ask questions in real time. We'll be talking about decision-making and words and phrases that can help you move a conversation forward, and perhaps most importantly, exit strategies for difficult moments. You don't want to miss it. It will be on November 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mark your calendars and use the link in the show notes to register. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our fearless finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me 
about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. There has been a lot of reporting in the last few weeks about the state of public school registration. Specifically, school enrollment declined by nearly 3 million students in the first year of the pandemic. It's the largest decrease in more than two decades, according to the Census Bureau. And the decline from about 76 million students to about 73 million students. And this decline is really steepest among younger children in preschool and those attending two-year colleges. So really on like both ends of the spectrum. We also see an increase in parents opting for charter schools, which are public schools. They're publicly funded, but they're run by private groups. We see homeschooling increasing. We see Christian education increasing. 2020 was a huge hit to the school system for a lot of reasons that are probably obvious. And California in particular is seeing enrollment dropping and average daily attendance rates that are so low that it's jeopardizing the funding for those schools to just continue to operate normally. Yeah, there's so much reporting about like school board members and administrators literally going door to door and finding students. Like, where are they? Where did they go? Because this isn't just people choosing a different path. There are some people whose children are not going to school. Again, you see it on both spectrums, right? So it's easy to justify keeping a really young preschool student out of Head Start or keeping a really young child out of kindergarten for an additional year. It's easy to justify prolonging starting college another year, especially if you can earn a lot right now to support your family. But I think that this is is still a problem across the board, even if it's the attendance is there. It is attendance in name only, right? There is a real struggle with participation, with all the testing to try to figure out where kids are to try to get them caught up. It's just a struggle. And I think, you know, I have friends who both put their kids in private school during the pandemic because they couldn't deal with the in and out as far as virtual schooling and not virtual schooling. And I have friends who have returned to the public school, and I have friends that have not, that have stayed in the private school system. And I just think it's important for us to hold space for how hard it is out there in public schools right now. We can't 
fix those problems. We can't even name all those problems today. I think it's going to take a lot of years to really understand all the dynamics that have influenced the way people are interacting with the public school system right now. Sitting here today, though, we know it's hard. There is a nationwide shortage of school workers, everyone from teachers to bus drivers to custodial staff. We need more people who are willing to work in schools. We know that school board meetings are the new town halls and not in a good way, (laughs) that there are incredibly hostile situations unfolding, some quite dangerous across the country. And national politics are influencing how people are talking about curriculum and how people are talking about safety protocols. So it's just an intense time. Last week, I cried through an entire teacher meeting (laughs) about my youngest son, Felix, who has just been struggling, just behavior issue after behavior issue after behavior issue. And literally, like, the morning I was supposed to go meet with her, the New York Times sent one of their parenting emails That was basically like, the kids are struggling in school. And it was so many things. It's like they're out of practice. They didn't get that, you know, steady attendance. You know, Felix, even though he went to Head Start, so he had, you know, sort of regular school attendance before he started in kindergarten. I mean, since he started elementary school, his kindergarten year was last year. Like, I don't think he's had one solid five-day week or maybe like two where he went all five days and there wasn't a holiday or a substitute or he wasn't quarantined or there wasn't a virtual day one day. Like, and it's just, it's showing, man, it's showing like one of the teachers was quoted in the email saying like, they just forgot how to be here. A lot of us did. Like they just forgot how to follow the rules and they need practice. And not to mention just the stress and anxiety of the pandemic. If they've lost somebody, if they've had, anxiety about getting COVID, if they've embodied or manifested or definitely feel the conflict at those school board meetings, the nastiness about masks. Because, you know, if you are a child and you're hearing this fight, I don't care what side of the fight you're on. What they're hearing is one group doesn't care about me, depending on where you are, right? One group I shouldn't trust because they don't care about me based on whatever side of your that debate you're on, right? If you're if you're a person advocating for masks, then it's hard not for kids to hear the message that well, the, my government or my teachers and administrators don't care for me. And the reverse, if you're a person advocating against masks, then your kids are going to ki- hear my teachers and my administrators in the school, they don't care about me because they want to make me wear this mask all day long. And like that's just How are they supposed to put that into perspective, right? Like, how are they supposed to have the tools to make sense of all that? I mean, the adults can't make sense of it. And that anxiety and that anger and that frustration is just this bubbling cauldron on which we're all supposed to, like, swim around and learn in. And you multiply that by however many kids you're responsible for as an adult in a school. Mm -hmm. And then you add on the school doing all kinds of new things because of COVID-19, safety protocols, new technologies, because we learned all this stuff through virtual learning, all the new assessment, as you said, trying to figure out where we are, all these new programs to spend some of the relief dollars that schools received and to try to show that it's worth continuing to invest in schools through those relief dollars, trying to just make up for missed learning time. And what you end up with is a completely unsustainable place. My sister sent me a couple of articles about this. She and her husband are both teachers in Chicago. And it really resonated with me when I saw one of these articles saying, here's what would help. And 
what would help did not sound like even higher salaries. It was, can we just hit pause on new things? Can we just take a second and let things settle? Can we help everybody remember how to be here? Can we get yeah. through a year? Can we have a few meetings less a week? Can we make those meetings shorter? Can you not scrutinize my social studies lesson plans because you're worried mm. about critical race theory or whatever controversy is swirling through our community? Just a little more time, a little more trust. Give me some space to operate. Listen, I grew up in a family of educators, and way before the pandemic, I heard, we get one thing figured out, and they add something new. Mm-hmm. Or something starts working, and they come up with a new approach. Well, that is that is endemic in the <laughs> public school system, and I think it leads to a lot of conflict between administrators and teachers. I'm not, I don't think I'm, we're breaking any new ground naming that. Um, and I think with the idea that, and it is a gendered idea. Because teaching is a gendered profession, and Helen Peterson's done some excellent writing on this, that we want teachers to be martyrs. You know, that because it's a largely gendered profession, women are supposed to sacrifice for the greater good and give it all for the kids. And it's just not, it's not fair. It's unethical. It's asking people for work they don't get paid for, which is wrong. And I think that that conversation has gotten, I don't know if the, the actual practice has gotten better, but I feel like the awareness, I have teachers in my, li- in my own life and we have teachers in our audience that name that now and mm-hmm. say, no, I have boundaries. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing everything because it makes me a good person. You know, I am a good person and I'm a good teacher and I have to have boundaries. I'd like that to be less of an individual <laughs> approach and conversation and more of a systemic approach and conversation. Because there does still seem to be that kind of, we can do it, everybody, just another Mm -hmm. day, take care of yourselves, try to get some yoga in, you know, here's a (laughs) donut, like, we do this for the kids. And and that's wonderful. And I'm not faulting any administrator who is using whatever tools that administrator can find, because the administrators are not okay either. Just like the parents are not, I mean, it's, you know... Of course, the kids are absorbing all of this because we're all a mess. And of course, that mess kind of triply falls at the door of people who are responsible for so many other people um, during the course of the day. So we just want to say we see it and we care about it and where we can advocate for acknowledging these issues and treating anyone who works in a public school, custodian, secretary, lunch personnel. Everybody deserves a lot of grace right now. Next up, we're going to talk to Klon Kitchen about cybersecurity. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. We use our phones for everything at this point, but did you know that you can use it for some sexy me time? Don't worry, your fantasies are safe with Dipsy. Just don't forget to use your headphones. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with vampires, Greek gods, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. 
New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. They also have soothing sleep stories, wellness sessions, and sexy written stories to read. Let Dipsy be your go-to place to spice up your me time. Explore your fantasies, relax and unwind, or even heat things up with a partner. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. My son Oliver is almost two. The desire for more hours in the day has never been more real for me in my life. An extra hour for reading, for sleeping, for working, for playing. I could use any of it. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to then make it a priority. Therapy can help you figure that out, help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Just last week, my mom actually asked me about my experience with BetterHelp after hearing ads like this one for it. And I'm telling you what I told her. BetterHelp was the perfect solution for me in a time of my life when I had too many plates to juggle, but still very much needed to talk to someone about the experience of keeping all those plates in the air. BetterHelp made therapy easy and accessible right when those were qualities I needed most. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You just fill out a very brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. I am really excited to introduce you to Klon Kitchen because I am a devoted reader of his excellent newsletter on cybersecurity, The Kitchen Sink. Klon has extensive experience in cybersecurity and strategy. He has worked in senior roles with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence at the National Counterterrorism Center and as the lead analyst on Al-Qaeda senior leadership at the Defense Intelligence Agency. He served as National Security Advisor to Senator Ben Sass, and he is currently a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And even if you think cybersecurity doesn't matter to me, listen, we go all the way to TikTok in this conversation. So we hope you enjoy it. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm a huge fan of your newsletter. And I wanted to tell our audience why I like your newsletter so much. I am like the ideal Apple user. I like things that look pretty and work easily. And I don't care what's under the hood. And I can't follow what's under the hood when we start talking about that. And it's nice for me to be able to read about cybersecurity from someone with your level of experience and expertise and that I can still follow because it doesn't mm. become so hyper-technical that it loses me. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's the goal. Thank you. I really appreciate, too, the precision that you bring to describing cyber threats. I feel like I open a lot of articles and I'm just reading about hacking. And when I come to your newsletter, I understand, here's what happened. Here's the impact of that. Here's maybe the goal. Mm. And that precision helps me. So I'm wondering... From a big picture perspective, if you can help us organize our thinking about 
what we're talking about when we discuss cybersecurity. Is there some sort of taxonomy that you use to describe what kinds of threats are out there, who's behind those threats, and what the goals are? Uh, Sure, I do. And one of the reasons why I think this can be so confusing is because it's very confusing. (laughs) There are a lot of, of bad guys out there. It is a very technical, challenging problem set that touches essentially every aspect of our life. There are kind of every day there's new ways that all of this stuff can can be manipulated or used or abused. And, and so, you know, for normal people who are living normal lives, of course, they're not following all this, you know. And, and so I, I guess I just say that to say you're not the only one and you're not crazy. Right. One other kind of broad context that I think will be helpful for your listeners. We live in an awesome country. And one of the things that makes our country awesome is that we have available to us amazing technologies, technologies that really expand human thriving and make our daily lives easier, whether it be, you know, all the amazing things that our phones can do or just the the normal provision of, of, you know, regular services. But it's also true that with all that has has come a fact that the United States is the most technologically leveraged nation in the world. So what that means is that's a double-edged sword. It means, one, we get to have these great lives and great toys. Uh, but two, we have uh, realized all of these advantages by innovating faster than we can secure. And that has been a natural byproduct of, of the free market economy that we enjoy, where you don't need the government's permission to to try new things and build businesses and all that. That's all great. But it's also been a little bit of a choice, one that prioritized getting out there quickly, getting out there fast, and, oh, we can do this new thing, let's do it, uh, without fully understanding its its implications. So all that to say... In a, in a technical term, we call that threat surface. So the United States is a very broad threat surface, which just simply means we're pretty vulnerable. Now, over the last couple of years, we have taken a lot of actions to help secure ourselves. But among the most kind of significant uh, threats, getting into kind of some details here that everybody will be aware of are things like ransomware, right? So that and ransomware is a piece of malicious code, often sometimes called malware, that somehow gets onto one of your devices. Typically, it's sent via email and you click on a something that looks like a file. And what it does is it locks your computer so that you can no longer gain access to your information. And the only way you can get access is by paying a ransom, typically with some type of, of digital currency. And that has become very prevalent. And it's not only happening more frequently, it's actually become a service. So bad guys online are now providing ransomware as a service. So Beth, if, if you wanted to be an evil person and start ransoming large portions of people, well, you could go to a website, literally pay them to do it for you. And the barriers to entry are very low. So ransomware is a big one. And then general cybersecurity uh, more broadly involves things like insider threats. So people who work at a company who, for whatever reason, get angry and they want to do damage to the company and they leak information. You have criminal syndicates who are trying to get all kinds of large swaths of data that they can then sell on to other people who can use that information for you know, bad guy stuff. That can include things like identity theft or you know, a host of other things. So I could go on and on and on. But the point is, is that cyber threats 
are are incredibly diverse. They're only becoming more diverse. And as we continue to integrate these technologies into our lives, there's going to have to be a type of um, consumer education that that has to come alongside that, uh, alongside some very necessary government action. Can you talk about that threat surface? Yeah. That seems complicated in the United States just because we have this real distinction between government, private sector, private citizen that doesn't exist in some of the places where a lot of this malicious activity is coming from. And so when you think about the we that is trying to be secured, who is responsible for this problem? Yeah, so uh, all of us. So as you mentioned, so what we refer to as critical infrastructure this is the this is the plumbing that makes the nation work. It's electrical lines, it's water sewage, it's you know nuclear power plants. It's it's all the 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 infrastructure that allows our nation to to operate and thrive. When we refer to critical infrastructure, the overwhelming portion of that is owned in private industry, not by government. Uh, and that's been great, right? As I mentioned earlier, like that that private industry is what has allowed us to develop all of these amazing tools for the most part, because government's typically not very good at that. At the same time, as those have become more and more central to our daily lives, their potential disruption becomes a real issue of government concern because it goes to our way of life and the security of our people, potentially even life and death. We, uh, as a nation, are trying to figure out how do we do this? Because by law, the, the federal government, so take someone who's really, really good at doing cyber stuff like the National Security Administration Agency, the NSA. We have amazing cyber ninjas who can do just stuff that you can't even imagine. But legally, they're not allowed to be on domestic private networks. And there's a reason for that, right? Uh, that goes to constitutional protections against government surveillance and a whole bunch of other things. And that's a decision we've made as a society. And, and But we just have to fully understand that in making that choice, we've made a trade, right? We, we've traded some portion of security for a greater portion of privacy or i would essentially we've said i would rather fear bad guys overseas than to fear my own government okay well that's a rational choice that we that we've made and we made it from the very beginning of our nation but that i think what we're realizing is is that choice is more costly than it used to be particularly in the context of cyber. And so I think a part of what's going on right now is as a society, we're renegotiating all that and trying to figure out, well, okay, in an era where something like facial recognition technology, so the idea that cameras will essentially be able to positively ID everybody and that they'll be essentially ubiquitous in, in, the, in the public square, at least. Well, what does a right to privacy look like in a world of ubiquitous recognition and identification? Because, you know, it's easy to it's easy to recognize all the bad things that come with that, like that rightly gives us all the heebie-jeebies. But there's some really good stuff, too. So imagine, for example, <clears throat> if your neighborhood had cameras and could proactively identify convict child predators and could send a text message to families, you know, in the neighborhood. Hey, FYI, right? Uh, or what if, you know, someone who might otherwise be kind of wrongly arrested could quickly be removed from suspicion because they had been, oh, no, look, they're right there. We see them. They've been positive. It's not them. Right. Now, there's the flip side of all that where all those bad things could happen. But all that to say, 
these issues aren't going away and, and technologies like these and the cybersecurity issues associated with them are only proliferating. And, uh, and, and people uh, such as yourself and, and the general public by necessity going to become more sophisticated into thinking about them because there's just no escaping it. When you brought up the child pornography example, I was intrigued to ask what you think about the recent Apple controversy where they put forward security protocols to scan photos and flag photos with child pornography issues. And then there Mm -hmm. was such a privacy outcry that they walked it back. I mean, I understand the privacy concerns, but I also understand that child pornography for anybody who understands what it's like on the web has gotten bigger than almost any entity, including the federal government can handle. And so Mm -hmm. I actually appreciated Apple's efforts, even though I understand the security concerns, like in order to tackle, if people care about child pornography and child sex trafficking, which they absolutely should, because it is a massive issue in the dark web, then there's going to have to be some big solutions. And how do we balance that? Yeah. Well, importantly, there's a, there's a broader political, and I don't mean that in a gross way. I just mean specifically a political context here where part of the debate that's going on right now, as we talk about cybersecurity, for example, is uh, employing encryption technologies uh, more broadly, right? So when we talk about encryption, what we mean is using math to make your communications and your pictures and all kinds of your content, even if it gets stolen, the bad guys can't use it. It's, It's hidden by fancy math. That's essentially encryption. You know, for Apple example, um, your iMessages, your text messages to other Apple phones or iPhones, um, those are encrypted end to end, which means that um, Apple can't see the the content of that communication. And the only person who can is the person you're sending it to. Well, they have been engaged by law enforcement uh, about that because they are concerned that those messages could include child exploitation materials. So you could text a picture to someone else and it could it could contain child exploitation. You know, San Bernardino Terrace, you know, several years ago was using an iPhone. We couldn't get on and it was encrypted. And so companies like uh, Apple were being engaged by the government and being pressured. And often the idea of child exploitation is used as an example of the type of thing that law enforcement wants to be able to get at. It's a very compelling argument. Okay, well, Apple for its own you know, reasons, doesn't want to make less secure services or devices, right? That's what a lot of us are buying it for is because they, it's secure. At the same time, they want to try and address some of the justifications that are being thrown at them, particularly child exploitation. So this recent effort fits in that context. It wasn't like they just decided, hey, we're going to do this. It was them trying to be responsive in a what I think they would identify as kind of a middle road way. We don't want to make our devices less secure and just be, you know, kind of completely open to the federal government. At the same time, the point about child exploitation is very real and maybe there's something we can do about that. Okay. So that's the context. The thing they did was, Hey, a lot of this exploitation material we actually have, and we can do what's called hashing. Essentially that means you put a digital fingerprint on it so that if it ever shows up, an an automatic algorithm can proactively identify that and remove it without a human ever having to see it, right? So you essentially break an image or a video down into individually pixels 
and you just understand like, okay, this is what the, the digital fingerprint looks like on that. And then the algorithm is constantly scanning for all known digital fingerprints associated with this kind of material. And so what they were going to do is, is they were going to have an algorithm that lived on your phone that was constantly scanning your images for any of those known exploitation materials. And then if anything was found, it would be removed and a notification would be provided to uh, Apple and then possibly on to um, law enforcement. There's a lot more details, but that's basically the idea. You know, none of this is easy. And the people who pretend like it is, I think either don't understand or are, you know, have a have an agenda. There is, you know, some degree, I think, of, of lost privacy. Um, I think Apple's intentions weren't nefarious, but it looks like, at least at this point, they did not make a sufficiently good argument to where society was willing to kind of make the trade. I mean, essentially what we decided was, no, we'll take the status quo in terms of the risk of child exploitation rather than give up a, a greater amount of our privacy. Well, I think that the case got made to a small population who is loud mm -hmm. and who cares, prioritizes privacy because they are tech and security experts. And that's fine. I'm not mad at that. But I don't think the problem is because this this topic is intimidating. I think if you pulled it to the mass amount of Americans and sort of presented it the way you just did, you'd have a different outcome. But I think Apple, you know, maybe didn't open it that conversation, opened it up enough to like everybody as opposed to the people who understood what the heck they were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I think this whole conversation is hard because when I talk to people about privacy issues, I hear a lot of, uh, I got nothing to hide. Like, it's fine. And I enjoy my shopping recommendations. Like the algorithms have made my life better in a way that I'm willing to accept. And I don't know how to find a space between that sort of personal sensibility about things and the very big out there China, Russia, bad actors conversation that we can kind of live in and move toward greater security in a productive way. I do think you have a fair amount of people that, are, that you get that I don't care, I don't have anything to hide, but I am creeped out by Alexa and how I talk about something and then it shows up in my Instagram feed. I do hear that pretty often. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, so uh, Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, used to call that the creepy line. Like they want to get right up to the creepy line where it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, how did you know that? You know, a lot of people often feel it's not true. But they often feel like, I think my phone must have been listening to me because I was talking to a friend about this. And then all of a sudden I started seeing ads. There are different ways that shows up. It's not listening to your your voice, but it's still creepy. Um, <laughs> uh, look, part of this is just coming and resolving yourself to understand that there is an aspect of our privacy that we have already given away that we're not getting back. Okay, we have... We are going to be known. We are already known, right? So you like Gmail? Well, that's not free. I know you're not paying for it, but it's not free. And you're the product. And that's the deal we made. Now, did everybody understand that when they signed up for Gmail? Of course not. But that's not going away because there have been times where people have tried to, hey, look, pay for the service and we won't collect any data. And we won't share it and we won't sell ads. You just pay us directly, you know, five bucks a month and all the unlimited email. Nobody goes for it. Nobody goes for it. So we have just made a decision 
um, knowingly or unknowingly, it's still been made. And some of that's just not going to be rolled back. And we're going to have to adjust to that. And we're going to have to figure that out. At the same time, a lot of a lot of people, my friends, my family, you know, they, as you mentioned, uh, Sarah, you know, they get creeped out by by Alexa and Google, you know, but they still buy it. Right. They still have it. A lot of people will have a tendency to say, well, this is just a market failure. You know, consumers don't understand that. Kind of, well, maybe it's also a market decision. And and there has been no lack of criticism for these companies. There has been no lack of kind of concerns raised about all the various things. And yet here we are doubling down. I mean, like consider the news on social media companies, which by the way, I'm only on Twitter and that's purely professional and I'm always looking for ways to get off. (laughs) But that's the only piece of social media I'm on. Uh, I'm increasingly convinced that social media is a net negative for society. And yet, uh, you know, I'm on there because I have some professional interest in in doing that. So we're all sending mixed messages because we've all got mixed feelings. Mm. And uh, I think that is a good way to characterize American attitudes toward technology. We like the convenience. We know it makes certain aspects of our life better. At the same time, we also know that part of it is a dumpster fire and that it's really awful. We'd love to take us back to that big picture view then, because... Mm. That is part of what makes us a great country and also a really good target. Can you help us understand when we hear about efforts coming out of Russia or China, what what's the goal of those efforts? Mm, okay. Uh, I'll use China as an example, and you can understand that that will have broad applications beyond that. So in one sense, it's normal intelligence activity or espionage, right? There have been stories recently about... Um, a hack that came out of China associated with the Chinese military and intelligence services against the Microsoft Exchange servers, which just gave them huge access to a lot of information. Well, they have a number of reasons where they might, why they might be doing that, but but generally it all boils down to intelligence. It's a, it's a relatively cheap, efficient way to get a lot of information. There's a level of deniability to it, right? So you can obscure it enough to where you, you have passable deniability uh, and so the the barriers are are too low to prevent that kind of that type of activity, and the benefits to other nations are are too high for them not to do it. Now, to be clear, we do this too, right? This is normal behavior for states. And I often say, I'm not mad at China for playing the game. I'm mad at us for letting them win. Mm. Right? That's the point. More more broadly, though, there is something with China particularly that I think extends beyond that. China is like every nation in the history of the world in that it seeks to build and wield geopolitical influence for its own interests, right? That's a rational way of operating in the, in the international world. And they have rightly, I think, concluded that leading in a couple of key technological sectors is going to be essential for building and wielding that influence going forward. So they need to be able to lead in artificial intelligence or quantum computing or uh, semiconductor manufacturing or robotics, you know, and so on and so forth. That, those are all industries of the future that are not only going to be the basis of the new economy, but also those are the technologies that are going to define and win battlefields. Well, they don't have the dynamic innovation environment that we do. And so for decades, they have been stealing intellectual property that will allow them to kind of catch up to the West in those technology areas. And one of the most efficient 
deniable ways of stealing intellectual property is through cyber means, right? And so that defines a lot of what we've been seeing out of the Chinese government for two decades. That has been a key initiative that they have had is to kind of steal intellectual property. And now they've actually written their laws in such a way as to where by law, if you're operating, any, any company operating in China has to provide their intellectual property and any data they collect to the Chinese government. And then any Chinese government, or excuse me, any Chinese company, no matter where they operate, has to do the same, which is one of the reasons why I raised a big red flag about TikTok, which is a Chinese owned social media company that is amazing. It's huge in the United States, but by law, they have to make their data available to the Chinese government. I really appreciate you confirming my TikTok fears. I have I have serious <laughs> TikTok concerns. I did not want to put the app on my phone. I made her. It was uh, me. I made Sarah her. made me. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, look, Beth. I, you know, the thing is, is you know, there's going to be a lot of your view, uh, listeners who who have TikTok, and you made this point earlier. Hey, I don't really care what they know about me. I'm kind of a known thing. I appreciate that. Number one, if you knew what I could do with your information, you may change your mind because mm-hmm. I can do a lot. I'm certain I would. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, then, but then two, it's not just about you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are a piece of a much broader mosaic. And that mosaic of, of, of insight and of knowledge provides real advantage yep. to a government that is increasingly adversarial to our interests and to our people. And so- There's a corporate sense here, too. Yeah. On that note, I have been dying to hear you talk more about your idea of issuing cyber letters of mark and reprisal. Can you explain to people who've never heard those words what that means and and what you think it could look like? So constitutionally, the Congress has the ability to give the president authority to issue what's called uh, letters of mark and reprisal. So we actually use these previously. So... um, President Jefferson issued letters of of mark um, to private naval vessels to go after, harass, and even destroy the Barbary pirates who were who were intercepting and harassing American naval trade uh, during the during the early years of our of our uh, nation. So it's a, it's a, it is literally a constitutional authority. So no one has to make anything up; it exists. But essentially what it what it does is, is it gives the president the ability to use private sector actors to conduct what is normally a government function, typically in the context of security. Well, in the cyber domain, one, there are more threats than we can handle. Two, there is real capacity in the private sector to do very narrow surgical things. So when I advocate for the occasional and selective issuing of uh, cyber letters of mark. What I'm advocating for is that the government turn to trusted private sector actors with strong government oversight to conduct specific activities on behalf of the government in the cyber domain. I am not talking about uh, another issue that is often conflated with this, and this is the idea of hacking back. There have been a lot of people who have called for a law that would allow private sector actors to simply hackers. So when they get hacked, to kind of follow them outside of their networks and get their stuff back, and that be a general law. I do not support that. I think that would be bad, bad, bad. Uh, letters of mark, I understand to be something much more narrow. And I think that's important, one, because 
there's plenty of work to be done right now and the government can't do it on its own. But then two, if and when we ever find ourselves in a true nation-on-nation war, that war is going to be very crowded. It's going to be very complex and it's going to be very bad. And a part of that crowded and complex environment is going to be, I mean, as we were already talking about, you know, the Russians and the Chinese, they're going to be using private sector actors in the cyber domain coming after us. And we're going to need private sector actors on our side who are trained and capable to help repel all of that. And letters of Mark are an entry into building that capacity, you know, kind of getting reps in slowly, carefully, methodically, building a capability for what may eventually be a a requirement. How do we know when we're in that war versus what takes place today? What takes place now isn't war. So you'll know because there, there won't be any question. Like at the point where we are in a nation on nation war and the types of things that I'm describing are happening, we won't, we'll know. Things won't work. Uh, things will be going off. It'll be, it'll be, there won't be any ambiguity about that. But we do, your point is, is, is good in, in the sense of we do, especially online, we do operate in this kind of gray zone where there's constant confrontation between nations and actors. There's constant kind of friction, right? Sometimes it's conflict. Sometimes it's harassment. Sometimes it's watching them watch us, you know, and it, it, it is. It, it, one of the reasons why all of this can be very, you know, frustrating or, or, or difficult is because it's, um, it's always moving. It's very dynamic and there's always layers to it, you know, because, you know, when it comes to cyber, if someone's in your network and can watch you, well, they're literally only a keystroke away from being able to hurt you. Right. And so is that offense or defense? Well, it depends on the second, <laughs> you know, and, and, and what their intentions are. And I don't always know what those are. Is that why you oppose the hacking back? Because, that actor wouldn't be able to see all of those layers and and understand what could be triggered. That's part of it. I mean, I mostly oppose hacking back because it would be a cluster. I mean, it would just you, you, there's no guarantee that people would actually understand what they were doing, that they would be as careful as they need to be, that they understand the secondary and tertiary implications of taking some, like it would just be the wild wild west. I mean, it would it would be online anarchy and I'm not advocating for that. So as, as we wrap up here, and I could talk to you all day, and I have lots of questions about lots of things, so we may be asking if you'll come back and spend more time with us, but I would love sure. to know. I really appreciated the way that you put into context that it's not just about my personal data, that I am part of a much bigger effort than I see all the time. So what's my piece of that? What can I do to help with that effort? Well, the first thing is, is and, and I, I think a fair number of people have done this already, but move as much of your stuff to the cloud as possible. And when I say the cloud, all I mean is the online services that are offered by Amazon or Google or Microsoft or Apple, the idea of, uh, you know, not having everything live on your device, but, you know, you're doing Google Docs or Word Docs and you're doing them online rather than living on your device. The reason I say that is because um, these companies literally spend billions of dollars every year on cybersecurity. 
because it's an existential challenge for them, right? They know that if they're if their users aren't secure, they're not going to use their services. So there's no one spending more on this than than they. They automate a lot of this so that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to know, oh, what's the latest antivirus thing I need to know and do? Like, no, they've got that. They've got that covered. I would say also investing in a VPN or a virtual private network. So you can get that as an app on your phone or you can pay for it as a service. And once you download it and install it, what it does is it funnels all of your online activity through essentially an encrypted pipe that even if someone sees, okay, well, Beth is online and I see activity, I don't know what's going on inside the pipe. I can't get inside to see the content. So I don't know what website she's visiting. I don't know where online shopping habits look like. Uh, and typically that's very affordable. I mean, there, there's a number, there's you know one, one that I've used in the past called F Secure. And I think I paid 50 bucks a year to be able to put that on five different devices. You know, so it's, I think, relatively affordable. The other thing I'd say is uh, two more things. So one, uh, the, the cloud and VPN. Two, clean up your online life. So just remember that um, when you post on Facebook, that picture of you on vacation with the family, hey, you know, we're in you know, Vancouver. Well, that means that people know you're not home. Right. And if they want to drop by and see the place and that you're not going to be coming home and, you know, surprising them anytime soon. Uh, you know, you're, you're giving that away. Also, remember that, you know, your your online profiles can tell a lot about who you are, you know. Uh, so just you want to be smart about that. And there are ways that you can um, you can uh, kind of hide that information. And if you just Google search, like if you're talking about on on Chrome uh, web browser, or if you're talking about on an app, you can typically just Google search the name of the app and then say privacy, and they'll typically take you to the page where you can adjust those settings. The final thing is, is I would just encourage you to be aware specifically that other nations use their technology companies to spy on Americans, period. That's not up for debate. That's not ambiguous. That is established truth and law at this point. And so it, part of it is on the U.S. government in terms of, well, we're making these things available and that's dumb, but you know I'm working on that on my side. But from a user side, just understand that always check you know where this app is and just ask yourself, like, how important is it that I look at a picture that makes me look old? Like, how, okay. how important is that really? Because that was a Russian held firm and they were grabbing your face those are the types of, of consumer decisions that we need to have be informed and all take stock as we move forward. If people want to keep up with you, your newsletter, they should sign yeah. up for. What, what else? Uh, so the newsletter is uh, the kitchen sink, S-Y-N-C dot tech. Uh, every week I send out kind of a, a quick digest and commentary on the week's technology and national security news written for, uh, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of people on there but um, it's largely written for a general consumer audience. I am a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So if you go to AEI.org, you can see everything I've written. Uh, I write a lot of op-eds. I'm on TV occasionally and podcasts like these. So feel free to follow me in whatever way suits you best. Well, thank you so much. I hope you guys don't mind to time travel back with me about a year. I was in the process of resigning myself to the idea that part of middle age for me might mean that my hair was going to slowly turn to straw and fall out of my head. Drama aside, 
we all know that your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. I have tried other custom beauty products and just found that they kind of made my hair worse. But ever since I switched to a custom hair routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair, yes, but beyond that too. I feel like I don't have to blow dry my hair anymore in order for it to look good because it's stronger, fuller, softer, and just looks nicer. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. My custom shampoo and conditioner, for example, were formulated to improve the smoothness and volume of my hair. And I really see after months of using my custom formula and tweaking it with the review and refine tool for this season that I have nice looking hair all year long. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So go get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Traditionally, the advice would be pick one. But thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ugh, ugh, out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, a.k.a. bra plum. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. That's code PODCAST15. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? It's cozy season, reading season. Every season is reading season. That's the truth. It's like summer reading season. <laughs> it's winter reading season. Anyway, the point is I get a lot of questions about my reading habits. I read a lot. I read around 75 books a year. So I thought I would talk a little bit about how I get that many books read. The first question I get the most is, do you read more than one book at once? And yes. I definitely read more than one book at once. You read more than one book at once. I do. And I also travel with you and can attest to the fact that Sarah reads more than one book at once. She uses more than one journal at a time. Like anything that Sarah has found to be a good thing, she's going to do it in multiples. And I admire yep. that about you, Sarah. It's a listen. It's <laughs> embarrassing. It's a scene. I roll into like a weekend trip with like three journals and four books. 
it's often my uh, expectations exceed the reality because I think I'm going to get like four books read in a weekend. And I just keep doing it. Anyway, that's not the point. Okay, so I do read more than one book at a time. I usually read about two nonfiction books and one fiction book at a time. I, I have read more than one fiction book at a time, but it's not something I do often because you, you do risk getting the plots confused. <laughs> confused. They got all just meshed together. Um, and I read more nonfiction than I read fiction, even though I am I love fiction. I'm devoted to fiction. I think fiction is important for your mental health. Anyway, okay, so here's what I do that I think Beth drives Beth crazy or would not be the best strategy for you. I like to pick like a number of pages to read every day. So like I have my daily reading homework. Yeah, that is not for me. <laughs> I admire it about you. It's just not because I don't. For me, I am not trying to read a certain number of books a year. I am not trying to track my reading the way that you're trying to track your reading. I read for specific purposes, which we can talk about in a second. But it is not a quantitative exercise for me the way that it is for you. Well, I've thought a lot about it, and that's not really why I do it. I think it helps me read more books a year. I do it because when I feel like, when it just hangs out there, oh, I should read some of that today. Then it feels like a chore. And so I like the idea of like, well, I'm reading this many pages. And when I'm done, I'm done. Then I can watch TV or whatever I do. So like right now I'm reading 10 pages of Barack Obama's biography a day because I want to get it read by the end of the year because I got it for Christmas last year. Now, it's set on my bedside table this entire year because you're never going to pick up a 700-page book and be like, mm-hmm, let me just chip away at this today. Like that's just never going to sound appealing, right? But like... Clicking off 10 pages is very satisfying. So that's the big reason I do it. And that really motivates me. And sometimes, often, I will set a reading goal of so many books, of so many pages a day. I'll get started in the book, and then I will finish it way ahead of schedule. I think the difference is that I never worry that I'm not reading enough because we read all the time for our work. I know yeah, that I'm I reading read all day. books. I don't I want to read the dang internet. I want to read books. I want to read books too, but I also have to recognize you only have so much capacity as a human being. And if I'm reading a GAO report and a Supreme Court case and 15 email newsletters and three Atlantic articles, like that's that's a lot more reading than the average person is going to do in the course of the day. And I feel okay about it. And so the, even the nonfiction books that I read, I try to be really excited when I sit down to spend time with them. I want it to feel like a treat when I spend time mm. with a book instead of like a chore. And for me, even putting I get your strategy and I really respect that. It just putting those parameters for me still puts it on the chore list. And I'm full up on chores. I don't want anymore. The other thing I do is, particularly with fiction books, I check them out from the library. So I have a deadline. I like a deadline. I have to read it by a certain date or it's going to disappear from my Kindle. Now you can game that system and turn it on airport mode, but I try not to do that too much. I have books on hold so that that, like, when they come available, I have to read, I have to check them out. I have to read them by a certain time. It, it, it puts in a little bit of pressure, some deadlines. I read books for book clubs so that I have a deadline. I'm in a couple of book clubs so that I know I have to read them by a certain point. I just have to have that extra bit of motivation. When I started doing that, my reading took off. And I want to read. There's a lot of dang books I want to read. And people keep writing more, which I think is rude and stressful. I really wish we could all just push pause for like six months and let everybody catch up. Except for our book, which will come out next spring and will clearly be worth your time. So right, right. That right. wasn't but rude. But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise. You know what I mean? Like I, that's So I, I'm 
And I've started rereading classics, which I find deeply, deeply comforting and satisfying and like the treatiest of all treats. So I assign myself pages. I have deadlines either through the library or book club. And third, and this is the harder one for people, I really don't watch that much television. I haven't watched any television this week. I've read every night. And I've and I've watched a little more recently. I watched the first episode of Squid Games. I watched the first episode of The Mayor of Easttown. Obviously, I did watch Ted Lasso both seasons. Can I just pause you for a second and tell you that Tracy, our executive producer, who loves us both dearly and says this with affection, is like, I hear Sarah say she doesn't watch TV, but then I hear Sarah talk about everything that everyone's talking about on TV. It doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't add up. But I don't. I mean, like, I haven't watched. So I watched Squid Games a week ago, and this entire week, I have not watched any television at night. I've done other things. I've read. Because I just, at the end of the day, I think I find books more satisfying. I'm never, like, disappointed, especially in a nonfiction book where I feel like I learned a lot or I found, like, some interesting perspective. Um, I don't get to it in the end and think, that was disappointing. But I often get to the end of a television show and think, I wish I had that hour back. Even when they're good, like, I don't, I don't, listen, the other thing is, y'all, I'm an only child. TV was my sibling, okay? You have no idea how much television I watched as a child and young adult. Like, I'm still probably hours in front of the average American. I've got space in my lifetime television consumption to skip a lot of days, okay? And so I think that's just, that's the, I mean, that, but that is the reality. Most nights I am reading, I am not watching television. I just want to be upfront about that. So my practice is to have long, meaty nonfiction books in progress. And I will have multiples of those, just depending on what is pulling at my attention today. If it is a light and breezy nonfiction, I try to get through it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm, Um, Or something mm -hmm. like, you know, we just both read Stephanie Grisham's book about the Trump administration. I'm reading Peril now. I'll finish that quickly. Yeah. A book like Humankind, like you referenced on the show the other day, I'm working my way through slowly. I'm working my way through Far From the Tree slowly because of your recommendation. There are lots of— Oh, yeah. Far like, From the Tree took me like two years. There are lots of spiritual <laughs> books that I just kind of w- work through slowly. And then fiction, I use like a weekend retreat for myself. If I mm. am going to pick up a fiction book, I am going to plow through that thing and just enjoy it. And it truly is a form of self-care for me. Yeah. I like to take, it depends on the fiction books. I Like when I reread Jane Austen, I don't want to plow through it. I want to like get every joke and read every sentence. I'm reading Still Life by Louise Penny because I want to read Louise Penny and Hillary Clinton's book. And I thought, well, I need to read Louise Penny's like main series first. And I'm really enjoying it. It's like set in fall in Canada. It's so perfect for right now, even though it's a detective novel, which is not a genre I lean into. But it depends on the book. Some books I savor. Some books I'm like, just tell me what happened. Like with the husbands. I was like, speeding. And I can, and also, let me just, in the spirit of full disclosure, I skim. If a book is not that great and I just want to know what happens, I'm skimming really, really dramatically. We're talking like a couple of the first sentences of a couple paragraphs every five pages. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just I'm just going to figure out what happened. So, and yes, I will still put that book on my completed Goodreads list. Thank you for asking. And I don't feel an ounce of guilt about it either. Thank you to all of you who asked. I love talking about books and reading habits. So we will put a post on social media so that we can hear about your reading habits because it's my favorite topic. I'm a child of a librarian. What can I do? 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pansy Politics. We hope you'll check out the link for the holiday huddle and join us for that. And we will be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart and Maggie Pinton are our community engagement managers. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Hattons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Holliday. Katie Steigers. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. Specifically, that it is way down. That the fewest number, is it fewer or less? Fewer. Fewer. Fewest? Less? Nicholas is going to yell at me. Which one? It's. I don't do that. I don't know. <laughs> fewest, less. Less is what you can count. Le- least number. So they counted. Is there a different way you could say this?